Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's Desi Craft Chat, we have Nandita Dinesh discussing her debut novel, This Place, That Place, and how the hybrid non-linear novel form helped her write about the effects of war, how her theatre and performance background informed this book, why she wanted to explore nuanced and ethical ways to engage with contexts we may not understand, and much more. Nandita Dinesh holds a PhD in drama from the University of Cape Town in South Africa, an MA in performance studies from the Tisch School of the Arts at New York University, and a BA in economics and theatre from Wellesley College. An alumna of the United World College Movement, Nandita has conducted community-based theatre projects in Kashmir, India, the United States, Mexico, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. In 2017, she was awarded the Elliot Hayes Award for Outstanding Achievement in Dramaturgy by Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas. This Place, That Place is about people earnestly searching for a way to preserve their friendship across seemingly insurmountable political divides. It centers on two characters from opposing sides of an unnamed war. On the day of a family wedding, a stunning announcement dramatically shifts the relationship between this place and that place, sparking a government-imposed curfew that locks everyone inside. Suddenly finding themselves sharing the same isolated space, the two grapple with unexplored attraction, their deep and abiding admiration for each other's work, and a bond they hope to save from being another casualty of war. Interwoven throughout, there are documents and uh, past correspondence between the two, laying out their history and how each sees in the other hope for mending the rift between this place and that place. The novel is a dialogue-driven, evocative and inventive debut that functions as an allegory for uh, Kashmir, India, Palestine, Israel, or any instance of occupied and occupier. But more than that, it offers a new way to think about the intersection of the personal and the political, a new way to reconcile nationalism and activism, and a new way to talk about conflict and two-sidedness. On a personal note, this is one of those rare debut novels this year that breaks a lot of the usual rules and deals with important critical themes around war, protest, and how the human spirit carries on, even in the worst of times. It isn't a quick read, and it 
left me questioning a lot of my own preconceived notions about what it is like to live in near constant conflict and curfew, what um, protest really means and why we need to keep looking for, as Nandita says here, nuanced and ethical ways to engage with things we don't fully understand. Please get this book, read it, share it, and discuss it. It's not your usual kind of Desi book, as I said, and it's likely not going to get the attention it deserves unless we all make a conscious effort to uplift it. Here's Nandita Dinesh now. Hi, Nandita. Welcome to Desi Books and the Desi Craft Chat to discuss your debut novel, This Place, That Place. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for, for inviting me. Yeah, no, thank you for coming. I, I, you know, when I first heard about this novel, I thought, wow, fascinating, because the, the first thing that jumps out, and, and we'll get straight to that, is mm -hmm. it's a very experimental structure. You've got aspects of, you know, plays, like mm -hmm. the drama, the theatrical performance, uh, you've got the epistolary, um, there's mm -hmm. journalism, there's even some verse-like sections. And so the first thing I'm curious about is what drove you to work with these kinds of fragmentary, hybrid, you know, forms and structures for this novel? That's a great question. So, you know, in, in one sense, I, I think I should uh, start by saying that my background is in, in theater and performance studies. So that has been a huge part of my thinking and my writing for the last decade or so. And in fact, I had my start in quote unquote academic writing, um, writing for theater and performance studies scholarship. And it was through this process that I realized that um, I've never been one to like sticking to the conventions of a form. Um, so I remember even in graduate school, you know, going to my professors, um, and this was at NYU, it was a performance studies, very um, quote unquote conventional academia. Um, and I go to my professors and I said, can I please write my final paper for this class as a play? Um, and they would often come back to me with, okay, well, if you can come up with enough of a theoretical framework to support it, go ahead. Um, I sort of give that backstory because I think this, this desire to think about how different forms come together and, and how they play with each other and how each story not only contains different elements thematically, but that each story perhaps means its own way to look on the page. That's been something that's really consumed my thinking for a long time. Um, and so it was that background, that desire to always experiment with form that, that led to the way the novel has been structured. The other part of it is in a more theoretical sense, I suppose, is, um, you know, I've been working in, in conflict zones, some more active, some less active, some that are considered post-conflict, though we can probably debate what that means. Um, and in all of these, these settings, one of the elements I found was that linear narratives tend to, in some way, offer a, they seem to present conflicts as somehow being understandable, that there's somehow these phenomena that 
can be presented in an almost linear form. Um, and that's something that even theoretically I, I haven't really agreed with. I, I find that my experiences in these conflict zones have been super fragmented. Um, and it's, it's about how you put these fragments together in some type of collage that then makes sense to each person differently. In my opinion, that's how, that's the only ethical, that's the only real way to make sense of conflict. Um, and any other way to write about it just seems disingenuous somehow, um, that it offers a linearity that doesn't exist. Yeah, I was thinking about collage was the, the word that I was thinking about as well, mm. you know, as I was reading. And I thought, I mean, I, I got a sense, but I wanted to hear it from you. I got a sense that what you were trying to do was subvert this, oh, you know, everything can be explained in a logical cause and effect you right. know, way, which which it can't. A lot of these yeah. things, you know, we we can't, we even today, we're still trying to make sense of the partition. If you look at the number of partition novels people keep writing, because we're still trying to get our heads around it after yeah. several generations. Um, and, and so speaking of your background, I mean, this, this story, and I won't give away too much, but the main story here is about a military occupation and mm -hmm. there's a curfew. And, and you've talked about your own background a little bit about, you know, in, in protest zones and places like that. Mm -hmm. And obviously that led to the seed mm -hmm. of this book. But maybe, you know, I'm always interested in the point of origin. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of us have ideas. If we're writers, we have tons of ideas. But <laughs> yeah. there is a moment or, or a point in time when we just even to ourselves, make a commitment that, oh, mm -hmm. I'm gonna write this book. I'm gonna commit multiple years of my life to writing this book. What mm -hmm. was that moment for you with this book? I think it was the point where I realized that nonfiction has more limits than fiction, or at least that's what it seemed to me at that point. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that I've worked in conflict and post-conflict zones as well. And, and I'm sure you've realized as well, Jenny, is that when you write narratives in whatever way, be they academic, be they journalistic, be they fiction about war zones, there tends to be a very um, polarizing effect on, on audiences. And that's what I encountered with a lot of my nonfiction work. So, very often when I would put up a nonfiction documentary piece of theater, because that's the kind of theater I used to create, which was based very much in um, the biographies of people who lived in these war zones and who became my co-creators, is that often we found ourselves getting into really unproductive discussions about, you know, why did you blame this person, but not that person? Um, you're highlighting the suffering of this community, but not that community. Um, why are you going down? You know, and, and often the conversations would just become unproductive. Um, whereas I thought the bigger questions were to do with why, as as humanity, we keep seeing, you know, we we keep falling into the same patterns over and over and over again. And and those conversations didn't seem to happen when the stories were rooted in quote unquote reality. So that's when I had this, this thinking that, all right, maybe I need to try fiction 
because maybe by removing the names of real places, maybe by situating in the, it in the speculative world, but that's clearly an allegory for multiple existing war zones, we could have more of those big discussions rather than falling into the, the traps of identity politics, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, and I want to come to that in a little about the, the names or the lack of names, because mm -hmm. I, I do hear you. It's about you're trying to open up a certain kind of conversation. And when you are rooted in very specific, um, you know, aspects of one particular war zone or, or area, you're right. It, the conversation tends to go in a certain direction and you can't mm -hmm. you know, get out of the weeds in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that that's fair. And, and and so talking about what you said about the names, you know, what what I thought obviously in 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 your book, you don't name the place where this is mm -hmm. happening, but it could be like you said, it could be anywhere. It could be yeah. the Ukraine thing right now. It yeah. could be uh, Palestine. It could be Kashmir. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you don't name. And this I thought was interesting as well. You don't give. The characters' names, either, and I've I've read a few novels where writers do that, and generally they do that because they want the reader, no matter where the reader may be from, to be able to identify with the character in in some universal ways. Right. And so I and, and I thought that was interesting. And then you also give them very interesting professions, like designing <laughs> protests as a form of storytelling, right? I thought yeah. that was amazing. So talk a bit about the, the two main characters, right? We, so we have this man and this woman, they yeah. meet at this wedding and they have, both of them have these interesting professions. I'd love to know more about how you came up with those. Of course. Yeah, you're, you're spot on in terms of the lack of names. You know, I think names also immediately can situate um, and I didn't want that to happen. So. I wanted the reader to say, who do I imagine these people as? And then ideally through that process also question why they might be imagining particular kinds of people in, in those roles as opposed to other kinds of people. Uh, and, and so I'm hoping that that lack of naming actually creates a space for, for reflection for the reader as well. Um, in terms of their professions, yes. One of them, um, the man who is from this place, which is the place that has been occupied by that place, he is a protest designer. Um, and in what I mean by that is he's someone who has spent his schooling and his, his life to understanding how to most effectively stage protests. Um, and I think I came to this partly uh, because of my work as an educator, you know, and, and I work in high schools. And a lot of the time, uh, my students say things like, yeah, you know, we need to protest this. And yeah, you know, we need to protest that. And, and often my thinking is, yes, well, that's, that's all well and good. But if you really want your protest to be effective, perhaps you need to go into it with a slightly more analytical framework and think about, okay, who am I? Who's my audience? What am I trying to get out of this? What would be my best strategy? So I think in some way, the professions that I've given them are wishful thinking professions that I wish existed because these are realms that seem to require more rigorous attention. Um, the other protagonist, the woman from that place, that place being the occupying nation state, she is uh, a deep deprogrammer. Um, you know, and now that I think about it, I think I, I came, I, I was, the seeds of the idea were there. And then I was watching that Netflix documentary about 
Osho, I think it was called Wild Wild Country or something like this. Oh yeah, um, Wild Wild Country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was watching that, you know, and just thinking about what's the difference between a group and a cult and what's the difference between an army and a cult. Um, and so if we talk about cults in a certain way and think about them as needing deprogramming to bring people out of them, why does that apply on only to certain kinds of cults but not others, you know? Uh, and so I sort of went down this rabbit hole of trying to think what kind of different things might be considered cults, but that we don't often name as such. Um, and so in terms of the book, I won't give too much away. It then made sense um, for me to say, okay, I want to make this, this woman a deprogrammer. And part of it was my own interest in trying to figure out what it meant to do that work. Yeah, I, I loved, I'll tell you what I loved. I loved how detailed you got about what her job <laughs> entailed and, and the same with the designing protests because you know yeah. they're talking to each other and they're describing their work and then you've got these little yeah. excerpts from uh, you know diaries or articles or whatever um you know I, I just i thought my goodness there's a lot of thought you've put into this and if ever somebody needed to create um a position like that they should get you and hire you you know because it was a lot of i mean a lot of good thought went into it and, and speaking of cults, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because it's not just, uh, I think, you know, what we traditionally call cults that need deprogramming. I was reading an article right. recently about how social media encourages cultish behavior. It's from the center of humanities, um, mm. digital humanities or something. And yeah. uh, they're the people who, who did the big documentary called The Social Divide or Social Network. And, mm. and I mean, they talk about how people who get addicted to social media also need deprogramming just like you do with cults yeah. and how social media's algorithms with the likes and the affirmations and everything kind of, uh, you know, uh, they're very similar to cult behavior, you know. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'll, I'll send you that link later. because Please. Out. But in, it's, it, so that's why I was, as I was reading how you have described it in your book, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, you can, and I think that's that's the goal of what you've done, because you've not put those names in and you've allowed the reader to make associations that probably we would not have made if you put more specificity in there. Right. And, and so what I thought also was even in terms of the dialogue, you know, there was a lot of subtext. I felt you yeah. were asking you're asking the reader to read a lot between the lines, to, to understand and interpret the silences. In fact, the, yeah. all these white spaces also, almost like poetry collections do. Um, and there are things that, you know, we can clearly sense the two characters are leaving unsaid because, you know, there is this attraction between them, but they don't know what's gonna happen. And so, um, and, and I thought that was done very well because you were amping up the tension, the conflict, the drama. Um, <laughs> And, but, but, you know, it, it does mean that the reader has to actively remain engaged when reading. Yeah. This, is not, this is not your beach read. This is not no. something you can just, <laughs> you know. So, but, but I want to understand, how did you technically, what, what were some things you were concerned about that, oh, you know, I've got to do it this way, but I want to make sure I don't lose the reader. So what were some things you were conscious about as you were constructing the novel? Well, thank you for being such a generous and insightful reader, Jenny. I think uh, that was that, that was wonderful to hear the things that that stood out to you. Um, in terms of what I was thinking when I was writing it, you know, it's so funny. 
I think my first thought when I said, let me try fiction was, oh, maybe I should try a romance novel. Um, because for the longest time, my friends and people in my life have said, why do you write all of these dark, depressing plays? And why do you do all of this dark stuff? And do stuff that's more light. So um, I often laugh when I think about how I, I started this place, that place, is somehow fancying that I was going to write a beach read romance. And of course, that quickly went to not. Um, but in terms of the crafting of the dialogue and trying to think of what works, right? It, that's a tough one because usually in the theater process, you workshop. So you write a scene, you have actors read it out, and then and you try to imagine and, and then you, you work off their reading to say, okay, is there too much text here? Is there too little? Do I need to build in pauses? Um, so in the absence of that, given that this wasn't a theatrical workshop process, I think I did a lot of, of play acting in my head. Um, so sort of saying, if I were watching this as a performance and this was a rapport, how does it sound? How does it look? Where does the silence feel too much? Where, you know, would I like to see more silence? And as a director, what could I do with these silences? So I think part of it was also those, those blank spaces where my own head going off into their imagination of, of what could be um, in those spaces. But I think a huge amount of refining the timing, the, the dialogue, the text came in the editing process, particularly with my, with my agent, who has been fantastic. Because I think at that point, it suddenly, um, it felt like more of the theatrical workshop, where I had someone who was a sounding board saying, yeah, but the rhythm is just off here, you know, you got to do something here to, to tighten it up. Um, and that's where I think it came together in a healthier way. Yeah, I, I, I do want to get back, you know, you mentioned agent, I want to talk a little, I have a question about your publishing yeah. journey in general, but I want to come back to this because what, what you're saying, uh, you know, in terms of uh, that balance, and I could almost see where you would have to read it out loud to yourself mm. as you're writing, just so you can get that sound right on the page. Right. Right. Uh, in fact, even as I was reading, I felt like there were some bits I had to go back and then I would read it out loud to myself and think, oh, that's what she did there. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and, and so there was the subtext part that stood out to me, as I said. Another thing that stood out to me was, you know, you've got this, um, the, the major part of this is happening, they've come together for a wedding to attend a wedding. Yeah. There's a curfew. And it's just how you play with the sense of time as well mm. in the narrative mm. and I, I want to you know again I was thinking about that as I was reading I thought well you know it's a curfew and just like you know a lot of us during the early days yeah of the pandemic we lost that sense of time like what yeah. day is it Monday Tuesday who knows you know yeah I, I'm curious about your perceptions and what you were trying to do because this is a curfew situation in the, in the novel what yeah. were you trying to do with the sense of time here for the reader Great question. So um, many things, right? Uh, so at one level, when the book was in its earlier drafts, there was actually a lot more blank space, um, which my editor said, you know, please, can we cut some of the blank spaces? Um, and so it, it got shortened a little bit. Um, but it, I wanted to create more of that sense of emptiness, right? So just create more of a questioning for the reader of what does time even mean? Um, and like you said, during the pandemic, this happened for people in, in very different ways, considering how do we use time? And what do we do with ourselves when people are not telling us what to do with ourselves? 
And it was this, this, this question that for me arose, in fact, way before the pandemic, just because of where my work happened. So the roots of that, I think, started in one of my first field trips, which was uh, my projects, which was in Northern Uganda. And we went to internally displaced people's camps and I'd never been to spaces like that before. And watching people who didn't have jobs and who were living with no home, uh, with no end in sight for that waiting, it was this, this real sense of asking myself, well, what do they do to pass the time? when they don't know when that time of waiting is, is going to end. And that just sort of has been augmented over the years, you know? So it was augmented when I started working in Kashmir um, and there would be curfews and then we'd be, we would be inside the houses without internet, without television and trying to figure out what do I do when I don't have these things to distract myself with? And then fast forward a couple of years and I worked with, um, with young people in juvenile detention centers in, in New Mexico in the US. And they were my students, right? And so wondering how are my students, how are these young people passing their time when they're in their cells always, a different type of curfew, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it was this sort of constant meditation of how do you deal with time? And I, I don't think the book provides any answers, but I think it, it is something that I, I still think about a lot. What does time even mean? <laughs> You know, no, I mean, I know you're right. The book doesn't provide answers, but I think it certainly um, explores it because at one point, right. and I forget which character, but there's this whole how to how to spend your time during a curfew, curfew time pass, <laughs> yeah. curfew time pass. That's, it, that's yeah. it. So I thought that was, you know, I mean, obviously you are grappling with that question quite a right. bit. Right. Um, and I thought it was interesting at one point, and I forget whether it was the man or the woman who said this, but they said, well, weddings, you know, of course, even if it's a curfew, weddings do happen. Right. You know, they have to happen. Right. So, but just a little bit, talk a little bit about why, why did you use the wedding as one of your uh, settings or plot points in the story? Yeah. So that, the idea for that actually came from one of my more recent projects, which was called Chronicles from Kashmir. Um, and that was, the culmination of what had begun as my PhD project and then became a theatrical collaboration with a company in Srinagar. And we created a 24 hour immersive theatrical journey, right? So what that means is the audience comes and lives in the framework of the play for a day. And in that 24 hours, we show them different aspects of life. So we're building this and in theory, it sounds really cool and experimental. And then we come down to brass tacks. And one of the questions was 24 hours is a long time. What do we create structurally, aesthetically within the context of this play um, to, to hold the audience members in a setting where they can get food, we can sort of bring in some levity, we can teach them a little bit about Kashmiri culture that, you know, outside of the context of the conflicts. Um, and, and what kind of frame would hold that? And one of my colleagues, and this was, you know, his idea for the play, he said, why don't we set it in a wedding? And everyone just unanimously agreed that that would be a way to bring in some of these qualities of caring for our audience in a 24-hour theater piece, while also highlighting a less thought about factor, right? Which is that even under the darkest of circumstances, people find moments for joy, people find moments for celebration, people find yeah. moments to come together. Um, and what you said, Jenny, was 
that particular response was something that an audience member told us on, on one of the times we, we staged a play, is that he said, but I mean, this is all fiction, right? I mean, weddings, weddings can't happen under curfew. And I remember one of my colleagues telling him, well, if they didn't, then many of us would not get married. Um, and it was this moment of, of just absolute absurdity. And, and yet it was such a poignant moment that I think it just struck me as, as what a wonderful frame to, to hold this novel, um, The Wedding, you know? Yeah, no, I, you know, and it reminded me of, you know, that famous Bertolt Brecht quote of, you know, in the darkest of times, will yeah. there be dancing, will there be singing? And yes, there will be dancing and singing. Because what yeah. else can you, I mean, you know, it's the human spirit. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you see so, that coming out in, in news stories about Ukraine too, right? Yes. That in these bunkers, people are singing and people are telling stories and, and there is, yeah. There's, yeah, I mean, we read that even with the Holocaust. You know, when, yep. when the people were in concentration camps or they were, you know, in those cattle cars being taken to the camps and it's the worst thing. They don't know if they're going to live or die, but, you know, song and music, what yep. can you do, you know, dance and music. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's just fascinating. Um, so with that, I'm going to go to my last few usual questions that I yeah. ask everyone. Uh, the first is, you know, there's a lot in this novel, as, and we've only touched the tip of the iceberg in, in our conversation, but what would you want, maybe one or two of the most important takeaways to be for readers? I would want readers, in terms of the content, I think what I want readers to really question is what are nuanced and ethical ways for outsiders to engage with contexts that we don't understand. Um, I think that that's a question that has plagued my work for the last decade. It's something that really plagues the book is, is this, at what point can you get it or can you ever get it if you've never lived it? And if you can never get it, then should you even try? And, and what does it mean to try to understand the experience of others? I think that is one central question um, that I would love for readers to think about in terms of the content. The other question that I would love for folks to think about is, is in terms of the form um, and what we expect novels to look like or what we expect poetry to look like and, and what these assumptions say about the kind of schooling we've had or not had or the kind of worldviews we hold or not. Um, and I think I would love for readers to, to engage in, in introspection about why do we expect books to look a certain way um, and what happens when they don't. Right. Yeah, certainly I felt that way as I was reading uh, because there's not a lot of novels like yours that come out um, with, with this kind of structure and especially not South Asian literature, right? South Asian mm. writers. Um, so speaking of that, actually a question I forgot about uh, to ask earlier, which was I wanted to ask you about the journey of the book, because I imagine this wasn't, you know, that you got an overnight enthusiastic <laughs> and you started to send it out to agents. You know, it, it doesn't conform to the usual norms of what they expect from a Not South Asian writer. So talk a little bit about how, you know, you mentioned your agent earlier. And so yeah. how did, how did, what was the journey of this book once you started sending this out? Oh, you are spot on, Jenny. Um, this is 
sending out the book was probably one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Um, I mean, in the early stages, you know, I thought about, should I just self-publish because this seems too experimental? And then I realized that I, I am terrible at, at social media and that's not going to work. Uh, and so I realized that I have to try to find an agent and, you know, people will, will say different things about what's worked for them. Most people recommend sending agent letters out in batches. Um, I think I'm more of a throw multiple balls at a wall and see which one will bounce back kind of person because I think I, I sent out, you know, agent query letters in the triple digits and I probably got triple digit rejections in the, in the first six months. Um, the number of people who said no um, just blew my mind away. Uh, I, I really, you know, it had me questioning everything about, am I even a writer of novels? Maybe I should stick to academic writing. Should I even try to publish um, in a more conventional sense or should I try to self-publish or and just get better at publicity? Uh, the, it was a lot of soul searching. Um, and I think part of it is just dumb luck, right? I, I think many writers try for a long time and never get that break. And I was just really fortunate that about six months into it, and I probably think I was at about 200 agent rejections-ish. Um, and I heard back from Mary Crinky, my agent at Sterling Law Literistic. And what I really, really appreciated about her was she looked at the novel and in its earlier form, it was more experimental than it is now. Um, and she wrote back to me and she said, look, I see what you're trying to do. And I think I can help you get there, but you're gonna have to rework some of these experimental qualities, not all of them, but some of them so that it can find a space in, in trade publishing. And, and I was like, all right, let's, let's see it. And I think, again, I would say really lucky um, because I found an agent who was also, in a way, my first developmental editor. Um, she didn't just say, okay, now I'm going to take your book and try to sell it. It was, okay, let's rework it to a point where I think it, it's the odds are higher of selling it. And then we started the process of taking it to publishers. And again, right, it was, a, it was another six months of multiple rejections before uh, Melville decided to, to take a chance on it. And, and I, was, I was thrilled, I think, at that point. I had thought it was a lost cause that maybe we'd have to move on to something else and return to this. Um, but I think for me, finding the agent was the pivotal part of the process because from that point forward, it didn't feel like I was going at it alone. Um, it felt like here was someone who was not only giving me feedback, but who could talk to me about this industry that was just so opaque that I just didn't understand. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I would you know call her my collaborator on this book, but just how wonderful she has been. No, that's great. Yeah, I think it, it is a tough industry to navigate on your own based on, you know, just my little experience. Uh, but, and so it helps to have someone in your corner like yeah. that, uh, for yeah. sure. So so what what's next for you? I mean, after this book and the promo cycle and everything, do you have another book in the works? Are you planning to stay with fiction? Um, I'm playing. <laughs> so the, the next one that's that's ready for for uh, editors to read and we'll sort of start shopping it once uh, once the promo gets underway for for this place, that place. Uh, it's I'm calling it a play, a novel, a memoir. Um, so again, similar questions of form, but this time thinking of what what is a fictional autobiography look like? 
if you will. Um, so, so playing with that genre, so that that manuscript is is ready for more eyes on it. Um, and then I'm working on on something else at the moment, which is still in its, um, you know, reworking the draft phase. But a couple of projects in the pipeline. Nice. All right. And with that, um, I'll come to my last question that I ask everybody, which is, what's your favorite Daisy book and why? It could mm. be something recent. You know, I know that it's hard to choose just one book. So it could be yeah. something you read recently that has stayed with you or or it could be a favorite book. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if this is one you get a lot or not, but there's one book that I've just loved for how rich it is um, in content. And I've taught it to my students various times. And that's The God of Small Things. Arundhati Roy is The God of Small Things. That is um, the all-time popular book for sure is on it? this podcast. But yes, I, go I ahead. figured. <laughs> uh, damn it. I was hoping I'd be original. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, her way with words is just beautiful. Um, and I think... I have just enjoyed reading that book. I'm also, my family is from Kerala. Um, and I think there's an added layer of some kind of familiarity mm. with elements of, of what she says in that book. And it, it's so easy for me to visualize myself and my family and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles playing all of those characters. Um, and I think that's one of the few times I can say that, right, about, about a book is to say, not only does it speak about the Indian experience, broadly speaking, but it speaks about the Kerala uh, family experience and, and what that might look like. And so it just made the story feel very close. Um, and of course, she's just such a beautiful writer, I think. That she is, that she is, yes. I think, I mean, I, I don't know many writers who will say they were not influenced or touched in, in some deep way yeah. by her storytelling and craft. Yeah, um, and I think for her to come storming through with a debut novel like that, at a time when it was mostly, you know, even with within the South Asian literary circles, yeah. the men, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I no, and I think that, that context makes it particularly admirable, right? I think I was reading something about how she got the book published and that she mm -hmm. sent it off in an envelope to a publisher in Delhi and didn't expect to hear back, and and then mm -hmm. she did, and and yeah. you're right that particular context being one of the few female Indian writers of that time writing in English um, for a global audience just um, yeah I'm in awe yeah. of everything she's been able everything, to, yeah. to accomplish yeah right right well thank you for that Nandita this was a great conversation I loved your book I I want more people to read it because again it subverts so many of the usual expectations you know of um, of the traditional South Asian contemporary novel so I'm glad it exists I hope it will be adapted into a play or something at some point because it, it yeah, looks like it yeah. could work that way very well it would be fun to do that it would be fun to, and thank you Jenny for being such a, such a generous reader and such a lovely um, conversational partner no thank you I you know I I haven't been doing a lot of interviews this year but I, I've been trying to make exceptions for the for the just the books that I think need more attention and, and deserve more attention. And I'm so glad I did. I'm glad I read your book this weekend. I'm glad I was able to spend some time thinking about it and talk to you about it. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you so uh, much. As you, as you move forward.
You've been listening to episode 82 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bad. Thank you for tuning in. Today's Desi Craft Chat was with Nandita Dinesh discussing her debut novel, This Place, That Place, and how the hybrid non-linear novel form helped her write about the effects of war, how her theatre and performance background informed this book, why she wanted to explore nuanced and ethical ways to engage with contexts we may not understand, and much more. Episode 83 will be up shortly. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books, Instagram at Desi.Books, Facebook at Desi Books FB. Tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions. And please go to the website if you'd like to sign up for the free weekly newsletter. That's DaisyBooks.co. And please share this interview via social media so we can keep raising the tide of Daisy literature. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well. <laughs>